You're listening to your weekly constitutional hosted by Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law in Knoxville, Tennessee. YWC is underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Donald J. Trump and his supporters will sometimes complain that there are certain people who have been trying to get him kicked out of office since the day he took it. And you know what? They're right. There are a number of people in the United States who have been trying to get the president impeached since literally he took his oath of office. Why? Why do these people so object to this president and so think that he is unfit for the highest office in the land? Well, recently I got an email message from one of these groups called Free Speech for People. And they've actually drafted proposed articles of impeachment, which they say could be adopted by the House of Representatives immediately and would serve as a basis for removing the president from office. In fact, they've drafted six different articles of impeachment. And I'll tell you one thing. It's about much more than Ukraine. My name is Ron Fine. I am the legal director at Free Speech for People. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works to fight for democracy and the Constitution. That sounds like a very laudable goal. We've spoken once before, haven't we? That's right. We spoke a, a little while ago about the Citizens United decision uh, where the Supreme Court held that corporations have the same right to spend unlimited amounts of money in elections as uh, people do and uh, how that decision has caused so much damage to the fabric of our country. Right. That was five years ago. I was kind of surprised it was that long ago when I looked it up on our podcast site. And this is the point at which I'll say that if you want to listen to that interview, just go to our podcast site. Um, just Google your weekly constitutional. And you're looking for a site called Podomatic, which is where our podcasts are hosted. And when you get to our page, you'll see the beautiful picture of James Madison's home. And then you can go ahead and search and the title of the other, other episode was What's So Bad About Citizens United? And Ron told us all the bad things about that particular case. But now, of course, we, uh, you guys are still fighting Citizens United. I just checked your website uh, this morning. But, of course, uh, we're obsessed about what everybody's obsessed about these days, and that's impeachment. What's your position on that? What, what are you all doing? We launched a call for impeachment hearings on Inauguration Day of 2017 when the president came into office in violation of the Constitution's anti-corruption clauses, uh, that, known as the emoluments clauses, because of his unwillingness to separate himself from his businesses, which receive money from foreign governments and from the federal and state government in violation of those clauses of the Constitution. What do those clauses say, the emoluments clauses, and there are two of them, right? There are two of them. So one is the foreign emoluments clause and the other is the domestic emoluments clause. The foreign emoluments clause uh, applies to any civil officer of the United States and it says that uh, such a person, which would include the president, can't receive any gifts, presents or emoluments from a foreign government without the consent of Congress. So, for example, uh, when the president's hotel, uh, blocks of hundreds of rooms are booked by the Saudi government. That counts as an emolument. The domestic emoluments clause uh, only applies to the president. It doesn't apply to anyone else in the entire government. And that says that the president receives a salary, which is set by Congress, but that beyond that salary, uh, he cannot take any money uh, of any type from either the federal government or from any of the state governments. And President Trump is, is also violating that clause through his businesses. Now, there are lawsuits on both of those clauses, and we've checked in on them periodically. What are the statuses of those, uh, those lawsuits? Well, what's interesting about the, the lawsuits is that there are issues that are very important in court that are actually of little or no interest uh, in terms of what what are the emoluments clauses really about. So one of the key ones in federal court is that a plaintiff in a case has to uh, prove that they have what's called standing, mm -hmm. which means that they have a, a unique injury. It doesn't need to be unique, but a, a specific and concrete injury that's different from that of the public as a whole. So 
the various uh, lawsuits over the emoluments clauses uh, have all run into, at one point or another, uh, questions and difficulties over whether the plaintiffs had standing. Now, that is very important in federal court. Uh, it's entirely irrelevant uh, in the impeachment context where Congress's job is to determine whether, in fact, he has been receiving emoluments uh, and, and if so, whether to to impeach and, and then ultimately remove him. But the standing of a plaintiff and the need to have plaintiffs that own competitive hotels or be attorneys general of different states is a, a problem that's unique to this approach of, of litigation. And so all three of the emoluments lawsuits, because they're, they're in different courts brought by different parties, uh, are, are in different stages. Uh, some of them are on appeal uh, and you know, what, what can happen is depending on the particular district judge that a case gets, depending on the particular three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals, you can have different views on standing. These lawsuits, uh, unfortunately, have, have not uh, made uh, tremendous traction so far. And really, the House of Representatives that now has an impeachment inquiry um, can really focus on that question and it does not and should not uh, wait for uh, the courts to first decide. Um, you know, who has standing in these cases. Yeah, this is, that's an extremely important point, Ron. In addition to constitutional law, I spend some time teaching civil procedure, primarily focused on the federal courts. And um, for those who don't mind getting down in the weeds just for a moment, essentially the federal courts, like all of the federal government, uh, are limited in what they can do, uh, by specifically by Article Three of the Constitution. And over the years, uh, the Supreme Court has said that this concept of standing requires, as you say, a specific and concrete injury traceable to the defendant and that can be redressed by the courts. And that's how they define, to a great extent, uh, what a lawsuit is that can go into federal court. And that problem is a big sticking point for a lot of potential plaintiffs, because if I wanted to go in and sue Donald Trump for taking money from the Saudis, how is my claim any different from 330 million other Americans? And I would have to convince a court of that. Even if I'm the House of Representatives in court or the Senate of the United States in court or the Attorney General of, I don't know, North Carolina in court, I'd have to say, what is my specific injury and how is it different from all the rest of America? So as you say, for that reason, the courts are probably not going to be the forum in which the issue of emoluments and Donald Trump's continuing uh, ownership of and perhaps control of a, a global business empire is going to get resolved. There might be a role for the courts. I, I won't rule it out categorically, but what we what we do know is that the framers of the Constitution spoke about this issue on more than one occasion, and their view as to what to do with a president that was receiving emoluments from foreign powers was impeachment. Right. And so I think perhaps I, I'm going to agree with you that if, in fact, there's going to be action taken, decisive action on the issue of emoluments by anybody, it would have to be by Congress and then first in the House of Representatives. And you don't have to actually have a crime in order to be an impeachable offense. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, the impeachment clause in the Constitution says that the grounds for impeachment are treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And that phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, is one that may sound uh, at first glance like it's talking about uh, statutory crimes, a, a criminal offense. But it's actually a term that the framers picked from British history, where in Great Britain, Parliament had been doing impeachments for hundreds of years, and they used the term high crimes and misdemeanors to describe a misconduct that was not criminal in any uh, meaningful sense of the word. And we know this uh, in part because uh, some of the framers themselves, like Alexander Hamilton, um, explained their view uh, of what high crimes and misdemeanors meant and, and described them in terms of, of being non-criminal. Now, in the years that have followed uh, under the Constitution, Congress has impeached a number of officials, mostly federal judges, but of its impeachments, more than two-thirds of them have even mentioned the word crime or, or alleged a criminal violation. And Congress has, has recognized itself that uh, a statutory crime is not necessary. It, it certainly can be, but it, it's not necessary to be a high crime or misdemeanor. That's an extremely important point. As Gerald Ford famously or infamously said many decades ago, high crime or misdemeanor is whatever the House of Representatives says it is at any particular moment in history. So certainly 
if the president has committed a crime, then Congress could certainly say, well, that's an impeachable offense. But the president can do a lot of other things that might not meet the technical definition of a crime, but that nonetheless Congress would feel involved, for example, in abuse of power uh, or a violation of the emoluments clause. And on that basis, uh, they could then go forward with an impeachment. That's right. And, and part of the the reason that this is so is that uh, Congress writes crimes or criminal statutes to apply generally um, to situations that would apply to you know thousands or, or millions of potential defendants. Uh, Congress doesn't write a criminal code to deal with every possible offense that could be committed by the president of the United States. And, and there's no way, uh, even if Congress did want to fill the law books with uh, a series of comprehensive statutes directed at only the president, uh, that it, it could ever do that because the range of misconduct that the president could commit is too broad to be described in advance by a criminal code. So abuses of power uh, and, and misconduct that don't necessarily violate statutory crimes have always been recognized by scholars and by historians as being within the scope of high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, I, I won't go so far as to endorse what Gerald Ford said, that uh, high crimes and misdemeanors means just whatever Congress says. There, there's a general agreement that these need to be serious offenses that involve an abuse of the public trust, um, not not trivial offenses, not not even minor crimes. Um, so, you know, DUI, for example, I think most people would say would not be a high crime or misdemeanor. But once you have a serious offense that corrupts or subverts the political process, or the governmental process, uh, then regardless of whether it's a, a crime on the statute books, if it's plainly wrong um, and amounts to an abuse of office, then that falls within the scope of a high crime or misdemeanor. As you say, the founders did uh, debate this. It was very important to them. Uh, they went back and forth a little bit. Some of them thought that uh, Congress should be able to remove the president for what I believe they called maladministration. And others said, no, no, we're, we're not going to remove a president just because we don't think he's doing the best job. But if it goes beyond that, then, then that's the time to do it. If there is some sort of abuse of power, and I believe that some of them actually specifically mentioned the idea that, well, certainly they mentioned emoluments, and that certainly they had a clause about emoluments. Now, the problem there, just to finish our discussion on this before we get on to more current events, is that there's no technical definition of emoluments in the Constitution, is there? That's right. The the term, which, of course, most people, including most lawyers, um, don't use on a, a regular basis, at least until the Trump administration, uh, has a number of definitions that we can look up from you know contemporary sources when the Constitution uh, was framed and, and to understand how the, the general public would have understood it in the late 18th century. But the Constitution itself uh, doesn't specifically define it. The Constitution doesn't define most of the terms that are that are within that that text. Mm -hmm. So the best that we can do is work from uh, the, the original public understanding of what it meant in the, the late 18th century and where it fits within the structure of the Constitution in terms of its purpose of clearly being uh, anti-corruption. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week I'm speaking with Ron Fine from a, a group called Free Speech for People, which has actually drafted up proposed articles of impeachment for Donald Trump. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. Uh, and in case you're just joining us, I'll mention that my guest is Ron Fine from a group called Free Speech for People, a group that's been calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump since the very first day he took office. And the reason for that particular call for impeachment was violation of something called the emoluments clause. And that's what we've talked about thus far. And that's where we'll pick up. Oh, I should mention today's date. It's November 19th, 2019. And I mention that because things are moving so quickly in this impeachment inquiry that this might sound old by the time you hear it.
unlike, as far as I can recall, pretty much every other modern president, um, he has uh, refused to divest himself of business interests or turn their running over to somebody else or putting them in a blind trust, as some presidents have done. Um, indeed, has refused even to share his financial records with the public. And so that does create an issue as to whether he is personally benefiting from some of these things. And um, not to take sides, but he certainly hasn't done himself any favors lately, has he, with uh, this discussion of having the Group of Seven at the Doral uh, Resort or, or that sort of thing. I think that's a perfect example. Now, in that case, of course, uh, it, it was canceled um, in response to public outcry. But we know that uh, his hotel business in D.C. has been doing uh, gangbusters business from foreign governments, uh, as have some of his properties in New York City. We know that Air Force crews were being uh, told to lodge at his property in Scotland, even though it was quite far away from the, the air base. Um, and we know that his properties abroad are continuing to benefit from approvals from foreign governments, uh, even while he's in the Oval Office. So uh, that puts him in the position of receiving benefits from foreign governments and being able to, uh, or, or being maybe impelled to, uh, consider the, the status of his properties abroad when, when making foreign policy. And just to give a very simple example, in 2015, he said in a radio interview uh, with Steve Bannon that he had a, a little conflict of interest with Turkey because of the Trump Tower's Istanbul. And now, whenever we see a foreign policy issue where there's a, a curious uh, or, or disturbing uh, interaction with the Turkish government, as we saw just a, a few weeks ago, uh, after he gave the green light for Turkey to invade uh, Syria and then uh, invited President Erdogan uh, to the White House, we have to ask the extent to which that's being driven by his confessed conflict of interest because of his towers in Istanbul. That's a very interesting take on it. Uh, I hadn't made that specific connection to the emoluments clause. But uh, certainly there are many people across the political spectrum, including many members of the, the president's own party who are extremely concerned about his recent decision to withdraw U.S. forces uh, from the north of Syria, or at least from most of it, or a good part of it, uh, thus allowing uh, what apparently was a very well-planned Turkish invasion to happen almost instantaneously at the expense of the Kurds, who had been our primary allies in the war against ISIS, and who in fact were holding several hundred, maybe thousands of ISIS prisoners uh, at that time, and the fate of which is not quite clear yet. So there are lots and lots of people who see the Russians occupying old U.S. air bases, who hear the stories of our own forces um, blowing up their facilities as they beat a hasty retreat in front of the Russians and the Turks, who are very concerned about this. And so you think it might be traceable back to his own financial interest in Turkey. One of the reasons for uh, provisions to prevent against a corruption or conflicts of interest is preventative. And people are familiar with this in ordinary life. Uh, like if I told you, for example, that uh, your doctor had received a large payment from a pharmaceutical company sales representative to recommend one particular medication and then say, do you think that had any influence whatsoever on your doctor's thinking? You would say, yeah, I, it might well. In the case of foreign emoluments, one of the concerns is that any time that a foreign government has leverage over the president because of his uh, dependency or benefit from those foreign payments, we don't really know uh, in any given case whether the president's decision or how much the president's decision was influenced by that concern, but, but it's always lurking there. So the, the reason that the framers wanted to ban the president from, or, or any uh, civil officer, from taking money from foreign powers is so that there is room for presidential discretionary decision-making, and it could be that a, a different president who was not compromised in this way might have made the same decision. But we will never know whether that was because even without an explicit quid pro quo in a meeting with the Turkish president, Trump knows very well that the Turkish president has leverage over Trump's own finances because of his buildings in Turkey. Not to defend the president, but from his perspective, he's got a, a business that's been largely built on his own name. Uh, and it's very much a, been a one-man show, at least in terms of the PR. And his sons and daughter, I guess, run the business. And so it's a family affair. 
would it have been possible for him to divest himself of all of this and go through a rebranding or, or somehow disassociate himself from this rather complex and large business? What, what would you have had him do? Well, I think what's important to remember is that public service is a public trust. And when he was uh, elected, it, it was made clear to him by experts in uh, conflict of interest and, and corruption law that the emoluments clauses, as well as broader principles of conflict of interest, would require him to separate himself from his businesses. And what could have happened was he, he could have taken uh, immediate short-term steps uh, to to, to, to address that problem. Now, it might not have meant uh, you know, a complete sale of all of the businesses uh, in the you know, 70 or so days between the election and the inauguration, but what he did instead uh, was a, a very minimal measure where he transferred uh, management control of his company to his adult sons uh, without removing his ownership stake. So he continues to be the the owner and, and beneficiary uh, of what is not at all an independent um, uh, business. And there are many mechanisms like a blind trust uh, or, or other means by which he could have turned it over for as rapid as possible uh, a, a divestment. Um, and he didn't take advantage of those and, and instead uh, to this day continues to retain his ownership uh, and beneficial interests in all those businesses. So this is not a case where he did the very best that he possibly could between you know the November date of the election and the inauguration day. This is a case where he has basically stuck his thumb out at the uh, emoluments clauses and said, what are you going to make me do? I doubt that I'll ever be in a position where I'm a multi-billionaire with a huge business run by my sons, um, of whom I also have two, uh, with our names very much prominently attached to it. So I don't think it's a problem I'm ever going to encounter. But uh, it just seems to me that I don't know if he could have completely divested himself. And I know that's not what you're suggesting, but perhaps he could have done something more. Um, um, But even then, I mean, he would have known it was his kids doing it. And that's about as big a conflict out there. I just wonder if somebody in Trump's position simply shouldn't be president. Uh, maybe that's a price of the office that he wouldn't be willing to pay. I, I don't want to go so far as to say that a business owner should never run for president, but I think any business owner who runs for president should have in mind from the moment that they declare that there are certain rules and requirements that come along with the office. And he's not the only wealthy individual uh, to seek higher office. Mm -hmm. And many previous presidents have been wealthy, have had uh, a lot of assets. Um, Mitt Romney certainly was was prepared uh, to to deal with it had he entered. Uh, And many of these, uh, many officials who are not president, uh, including even in this administration, have managed one way or another to uh, resolve these conflicts uh, before or or shortly after entering office, working with uh, ethics officials within the federal government. So uh, at some point you have to choose. Um, Mm -hmm. You can choose to remain in in private business and and take money from foreign governments, or you can uh, choose to to run for president. and, and, And if you win, then be prepared to pay the price that goes along with that. Yeah, certainly Donald Trump knew years before he ran that he was going to run, or at least he was seriously considering it. So I guess the onus was upon him to make sure that he was going to be able to and be able to fulfill the requirements of office. Then clearly, since day one, you all have had your arguments uh, with regard to why you think Trump should be impeached. Since that time, I gather there are some more arguments that you're raising in that regard. That's right. And and I honestly wish that there weren't. Uh, but the, the president himself has repeatedly crossed the constitutional bounds of his office. And we have enumerated most recently six different grounds for impeachment that can be put into articles of impeachment that could be passed today based on what is already known that do not require extensive further factual investigation. And you've actually drafted proposed articles of impeachment. That's right. And they're available on our our website. They're written for all to read. Uh, They're written in a a manner that recalls previous articles of impeachment against other officials. And they stick as, as closely as possible to what is already publicly known and not really subject to any reasonable dispute. 
The first is abuse of power to target political adversaries, critics, and the press. So this is something that he's done since shortly after taking office. Uh, he directs law enforcement and federal agencies to target, investigate, or retaliate against political adversaries and critics. And he's repeatedly misused his office to undermine the freedom of the press. And this is, again, something that he started fairly early in his tenure, in, in a way presages what he ended up doing with uh, the Ukrainian government and in trying to pressure the outside government to take action against his political opponents. But he's been doing it from his federal seat of office for a, a quite a long time. Are you referring to his comments about the press being the enemy of the people? Yeah, I mean, it starts with that, but it mm -hmm. goes beyond that. So he's repeatedly directed law enforcement uh, to investigate and prosecute specific named private citizens or uh, employees of the federal government. Could you give me an example or two oh, of that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and you know, much of this uh, occurs on his Twitter feed. So mm -hmm. um, in preparation for uh, writing our book, The Constitution Demands It, um, which is uh, about the case for impeachment, we had to go through President Trump's Twitter feed. And uh, let me tell you, it's um, it's a little uh, disturbing to go through. But he has multiple times called on the Department of Justice to investigate his self-determined political opponents and critics. So I will pull out some examples of uh, specific uh, tweets that he has said. Well, I mean, one, um, one of them is talking about the Clintons, of course. That's probably the most prominent example. But there's That's right. But here's an interesting thing, though. I mean, on the one hand, he's using Twitter, uh, it seems to be, to, to issue orders or to announce policy, his personal Twitter feed, too, not just his official one. And yet we, we see this strange phenomenon where he will berate his, um, his uh, attorney general for not doing enough about the Clintons or not doing enough about some other political enemy, um, when he, of course, could just fire the attorney general and, uh, and put in a more compliant person. Um, and up till relatively recently, he wasn't doing that. So that's what I've always failed to understand is uh, the sort of resistance that was coming from people who were at least nominally his, his allies. Uh, Jeff Sessions, I'm thinking of primarily. That's right. And from, from uh, early in, in 2017, he, he started uh, leaning on Sessions. But he's asked, and again, just based on what we know, uh, because Trump himself has said it in public or tweeted it, he's asked for the Department of Justice to go after Hillary Clinton, uh, Huma Abedin, um, uh, Andrew McCabe, um, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, Terry McAuliffe, and many others. And what we also know is that behind the scenes, he's been pressuring uh, Department of Justice uh, officials to do the same thing. They've often resisted. And, and that's an important point that uh, that whether career officials or senior political appointees, many times they have not done what he's asked. Importantly, that was also true in the Nixon administration. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the articles of impeachment against Nixon uh, addressed attempts that he had made to use federal agencies to target his enemies list. And sometimes uh, you know, government staff or political appointees resisted and didn't do what he asked. And so it does seem that, that that's happened quite a bit in the Trump administration. But, but the attempt itself um, was, again, part of the articles of impeachment against Nixon. And we think it, it should apply just as much to Trump. That was what I was going to ask. So in your opinion, the, the attempt itself and previously in the Nixon impeachment as they were preparing to impeach him and he resigned. So even just attempting to pressure the federal government to go after one's political enemies is an abuse of power that you believe is impeachable. That's right. And that the second article of impeachment that the House Judiciary Committee approved against Richard Nixon uh, specifically cited uh, examples uh, of where he had misused federal agencies by directing them uh, to go after uh, his political uh, opponents but the fact that the government agencies didn't always comply with his requests was not a defense. Well, then what is your second proposed article of impeachment? Well, the second article of impeachment uh, is what we're calling corruption of electoral processes. So this is uh, the pattern that he has engaged in since 2016 of, uh, of uh, abuse of power and corrupt conduct to obtain and retain his office. So that includes seeking campaign help from foreign entities, uh, making unlawful hush money payments to influence the 2016 election, and by deceiving the American public about this activity. And the, the recent revelations of, about Ukraine would fall into this category. 
Very interesting. So we're talking, of course, about the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, which is former fixer Michael Cohen has uh, has explained uh, about. I believe Mr. Cohen is now serving his sentence in jail in federal prison. And you also say that uh, other things that he did during the election involved corruption as well. What do you mean about corrupting the political process? What I mean by that is that when the president or candidate for president is engaged in violations of federal campaign finance law, trafficking with foreign governments or or foreign entities to influence our elections uh, unlawfully, then that is a a fundamental corruption of the the democratic election process. So in 2016, that includes, of course, uh, he he counseled um, the Russian government and WikiLeaks to interfere with the 2016 election. And he certainly helped in the cover-up of his campaign aides uh, meeting with agents of the Russian government, as well as the, the hush money payments that were made uh, to Stormy Daniels and to Karen McDougal um, to keep them silent about um, their uh, affairs with him uh, in order to prevent that information from getting out into the news during the 2016 election. And that, that is... It, Michael Cohen's role in that is why he's now serving time in federal prison. And in the upcoming election in 2020, we've already seen that he attempted to withhold funds that Congress had designated for Ukraine until the Ukrainian government would announce that it was investigating the Bidens. And then he openly called on the government of China to investigate his political opponents, all misusing his office in an attempt to influence the upcoming election, which is really the the most dangerous move that one can make in an election is, is for the incumbent president to try to leverage the power of his office to ask a, a foreign government to interfere with it. That is something that the framers were very concerned about. Yeah, they were. That was one of the big parts of their debate about Article 2 and the president and the potential for foreign interference. And just as uh, big an issue today as it was uh, back in the, in the day. And we've been, I, I should say, in fairness, that the Mueller report did not conclude that there had there was adequate evidence of collusion with Russia. They, I believe that the Mueller report said that the Trump campaign welcomed it and that certainly Russia did uh, interfere in the election and, as Mueller himself famously said, is doing it as we sit here today. But now the Mueller report, may we find out, may have actually been flawed in the sense that it didn't have all the information that has later come out in the trial of Trump associate Roger Stone. Apparently, there are now allegations that the House is investigating that, uh, that Trump lied in his written answers uh, to the Mueller investigation. That's right. We, we may yet learn more about that, but I think we can say, based on what we already know from Trump's own mouth, that Trump said on, on national television, Russia, if you're listening, if you can get Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, I think you'll be mightily rewarded. And it was shortly after that that the uh, release of emails that were hacked by uh, Russian entities into the Democratic National Committee began to be released to the public. So whatever we may yet find out, that whether Trump uh, lied to Mueller's investigators uh, or, or whatever else may turn out, we know from Trump's own mouth that he openly called on the Russian government to do that. And I don't know why we would need to have evidence of a, a secret back channel that would say the same thing that he said publicly. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking this week via Skype with Ron Fine of a group called Free Speech for People, a group that has been calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump since the day he was inaugurated. now it's time to finish our discussion with Ronald Fine, a lawyer with a group called Free Speech for People, which has actually drafted up six articles of impeachment that it claims can be immediately adopted by Congress and would give a wide range of reasons, far beyond just the Ukraine brouhaha, for the impeachment of Donald Trump. I'll mention that today's date is November 19th, 2019. And I, I mention that because by the time you hear this episode, Well, things are moving so quickly, it might seem a little bit dated. 
What's the third basis for a proposed article of impeachment, according to your organization? The, the third article that we've put forth involves conduct that violates the constitutional rights of individuals and misuses agencies of the executive branch for improper purposes to promote discrimination, hostility, or unlawful violence on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. We recognize that this is one that may not be as immediately familiar to people. Um, so we've actually produced a report explaining uh, when this type of conduct does and does not rise to the level of an impeachable offense. But basically, it, it fits into uh, three main categories. One is when he advocates illegal violence by law enforcement or, or government personnel. A second category is when he incites or encourages uh, private parties into committing violence based on race, color, religion, or national origin. And then the, the final major category is when there is policy that has an intentional purpose of invidious discrimination in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. When you put these together, it forms a pattern that I think we can uh, describe succinctly as abuse of office to promote discrimination, hostility, and unlawful violence. So your argument would be then that through his rhetoric, through his Twitter account, through his other actions, that you can trace a line from that to the significant uptick we've seen in uh, domestic terrorism and so-called white nationalist terrorism in the United States in the last few years. Is that your argument? What we don't need is a, a proof of causation that but for uh, you know Trump's remarks, um, you know the white supremacists would not have engaged in mm -hmm. particular acts of, of violence. And I don't think we would ever be able to uh, produce uh, you know such a direct line of causation. But we certainly see that many of these white supremacists are citing Trump uh, and and his materials as part of their own motivation. And any one tweet by itself is not grounds for impeachment, nor is any one remark uh, that he makes. But when you put it in the broad category of, of a pattern where he's asking police to be rough with Latinos that they arrest, when he is uh, advocating that soldiers commit war crimes, when he is repeatedly encouraging that people be, be roughed up uh, and, and then pardoning a sheriff who had been convicted of criminal contempt of court for violating an injunction uh, to stop abusing the constitutional rights of Latinos. And then- That was Joe, Joe Arpaio, all, right? That's Joe Arpaio, right. that's right. And on top of all of that, a course of conduct at the southern border where uh, he's separating children from their families and, and detaining them under cruel and unconstitutional conditions, and then reportedly telling federal employees that they could disregard federal law, and if they were caught, he would pardon them of any crimes. It creates a pattern of abusive office that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. Hmm. And as you point out, a lot of the things you mentioned have been done quite openly. I do recall during a campaign rally, I believe it was maybe up in Pennsylvania, where he encouraged his supporters to rough up people who were protesting in the audience. And I believe at one point he even said he would pay their legal fees. We talked about it on this show in the context of incitement to violence, because that's how I always explain to my class the standard for incitement to violence is that you've actually got to be encouraging violent behavior that has an imminent likelihood of resulting in a violent act. And in that one circumstance, at least, uh, that's exactly what happened. And so I, I pointed out that if a local prosecutor had wanted to prosecute then-candidate Trump, that he probably would have been able to do so constitutionally. Now, whether Trump would have been convicted, I don't know. That would be up to the jury. But I, I guess I hadn't thought about it in the sense that you are, which is that this is a pattern of misbehavior that in your article, your proposed article, arises to the level of an abuse of power. Well, I hate to rush you, but we, we're only halfway through and we're getting a little short on time. So what's your fourth proposed article of impeachment? Well, I, I feel like we've already talked about emoluments, so okay. uh, we can move oh, we, Yeah, we got emoluments. Oh, we, we took care of that one. Okay. The next one is uh, obstruction of the administration of justice and of congressional inquiries. Uh, this uh, began um, most prominently, of course, with the obstruction of the Mueller report describes. Now, what's important for people to know is that Mueller, for his own reasons, decided not to make a recommendation as to whether he thought that the president had committed uh, the federal statutory crime of obstruction of justice, although he laid out a number of incidents where he described each of the elements of those crimes and in enough detail to see that it, it clearly does meet the, the standard for obstruction of justice, but that the impeachable offense 
of obstruction of the administration of justice, which is actually what the article against President Richard Nixon was titled, is not bound to what a prosecutor determines may or may not violate a federal statute. And we know from the Mueller report itself that the president's course of conduct, much of which was already public by the time the Mueller report came out, that he took multiple steps that went beyond appropriate use of his office to try and block investigations into the conduct of himself and his associates. And then he tried to do the same thing with Michael Cohen uh, to, to get him to, to not you know, testify uh, or, or cooperate with the Department of Justice or Congress. And he has been doing some of the same activity with respect to congressional committees now in the Ukraine investigation through witness intimidation, through uh, taking steps to, to block people from testifying, and, and obstruction of Congress was actually the third article of impeachment against Richard Nixon. Yeah, and um, there were the so-called smoking gun tapes, where if my memory serves me, um, he ordered one federal agency to ask another federal agency to stop its investigation. I always forget whether he was asking the CIA to stop the FBI or the other way around. Um, but that itself, that one statement was the moment at which his Republican support in Congress collapsed and where Barry Goldwater and others went over and said, you know, you're going to get impeached and we don't have the votes to save you in the Senate. And that's when he decided to resign. What do you think accounts for the very different reaction of this president um, to the similar uh, allegations that he faces? Well, strange as it may sound, I think Nixon had more of a sense of honor than Trump. Uh, and what I mean by that is that Nixon understood there was such a thing as the law. Um, he wished that it didn't apply to him, um, and he sometimes argued that it didn't apply to him. Yeah. Uh, but he, acknowledge, he acknowledged in the end uh, that, that he was bound by it, uh, whereas I, I don't think uh, Trump uh, acknowledges that, that any rules bind him. Um, and so I don't think he would be... Uh, I, I think Nixon was not nearly so shameless as Trump. But then the other side of that is sometimes for reasons that are more psychological than, than legal or, or constitutional, people react differently to uh, a surprise revelation contained in a secret tape than they do to something that happens openly in public. And Trump has managed to uh, confound or even hack uh, our collective psychology by doing things openly that Nixon did in secret. And there's sometimes a sense that if he said it publicly for everyone to hear, then it can't be all that bad. Uh, but if, if Nixon or, or any other president had done half of what Trump does uh, openly, but, but it had been discovered in secret tapes, that would have been immediate grounds for impeachment. Hmm. All right. So what's the last one? I think we're up to number six now. That's right. The, the last one is, is a pattern of misusing the U.S. armed forces and abusing emergency powers. And these are uh, fall into a category of exceeding the bounds of his office in derogation of the powers of Congress. So the Constitution uh, gives Congress the power to declare war, to make appropriations, and to raise and support armies. And we've identified uh, five separate instances where Trump has, uh, has violated that. And you know, just to, to give one example, um, he misused the military for political purposes in 2018 by declaring that there was a, an emergency threat of a, a caravan approaching the southern border that required the immediate deployment of thousands of soldiers um, to the southern border. Uh, so he, he sent them there. Uh, and then as soon as the election had passed, um, even though the caravan was barely any, uh, the caravan was still approaching, all of a sudden it wasn't an emergency over. Uh, it wasn't an emergency anymore, and that ended it. So in other words, he clearly misused the military for political purposes in the 2018 election. And that's the, the type of example um, where uh, Yes, of course, the president is commander in chief, but his powers over the military are not limitless and misusing the army for a blatantly political purposes like that is an abuse of power. I suppose also within this particular proposed article of impeachment, you would criticize his transfer of funding from military projects to construct the 
border wall uh, that he's not been able to get Congress to authorize otherwise. Is that is that where that particular concern falls? That's right. So c Congress has given presidents statutory authority in the case of uh, an emergency um, to move funds uh, from, from one place to another. Um, what the President Trump has done is he abused those emergency powers by declaring a national emergency at the southern border. Um, the, the statutory definition of an emergency involves a sudden, unforeseen emergency requiring immediate action. And in fact, Trump was just doing this because something that he'd been trying to get Congress to fund for a year, uh, Congress didn't want to fund. So again, Congress has the authority to appropriate funds for construction projects. And uh, Trump took an emergency powers statute that may have been written too broadly, in, in part because Congress didn't envision it would be abused this way, but he abused the emergency power by seeking to, and successfully so far, seizing money from other projects uh, and, and using it to, to construct this wall that Congress specifically refused to fund. Well, now I'll play devil's advocate here. Um, his attorney general, Trump's attorney general now, uh, William Barr, who seems to be the sort of attorney general Trump wants, he seems to be pleased with Barr's performance for the most part, unlike Jeff Sessions, uh, is arguing what's commonly called the unitary theory of the executive. That is that the president has all executive powers and that Congress really shouldn't question what he does too much because they're just interfering with the mandate of the people. And, you know, the American people, so the argument goes, chose Trump in 2016 to do the things that Trump is doing. And Congress is getting in the way, so maybe he does need to exert emergency powers. Maybe he does need to use the military in somewhat unconventional ways. Or maybe he does need to do many of the things that we've discussed during our interview uh, because Congress and the courts, to some extent, are just getting in his way. How do you respond to that? The framers of the Constitution made a three-part government where each part has its own uh, powers and authorities and limitations. And one of the important elements of that design is that the power to raise funds and appropriate funds uh, was given to Congress. And so Congress is the ultimate decider of what money gets spent on. Now, granted, there is uh, an allocation made through these emergency statutes for uh, immediate unforeseen emergencies where you know Congress can't get together um, because you know something disastrous has happened and the president needs to act within the next few days but this is a case that doesn't fit in with within that category by any reasonable argument this is a case where he asked Congress to fund a project and Congress explicitly refused uh, and and it wasn't like uh, all of the president's party was in favor and the opposition party was against or anything like that it was general bipartisan agreement not to appropriate uh, many millions of dollars to build this wall but trump wanted to do it anyway so he seized upon these uh, little used uh, maybe used more often than they should but certainly not routine ways of funding government projects emergency powers as a means to to get around Congress, to get around the fact that Congress, which the framers of the Constitution said, should be the one deciding what our tax money gets spent on. And instead, he then used it to uh, spend it on a project that the people's representatives did not want to spend our tax money on. We've mentioned the Nixon situation several times here, and um, many people are drawing a direct comparison between those two, which is sometimes hard to avoid when you see that Roger Stone has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his, on his back. And many of the people who are around this current president uh, have connections back to the Nixon administration. What do you think accounts for the primary difference? Uh, you've already mentioned you think the two gentlemen themselves, Nixon and Trump, are simply have di are different characters. But what do you think accounts for the fact that the country doesn't seem to be, at least at this point, as solidly behind impeachment and removal as uh, they were approaching when Richard Nixon made his decision to resign. I'll tell you something interesting, which is that if you look at historical polling data of uh, support for impeachment in 1973 and 1974, um, support for impeaching Trump has for many months now been higher than it was for most of that two-year period uh, with Nixon. And in the case of Nixon, um, support for impeachment didn't cross 
50% until after the House Judiciary Committee had already approved articles of impeachment uh, in you know just a few days before Nixon resigned. Mm -hmm. uh, we're already at that point now. So in other words, there is more support for impeaching Trump than there was for impeaching uh, Richard Nixon until the, the, the basically the last two weeks of his presidency. Now, obviously, a lot has changed over the years. We have a different media environment. We have a different uh, political party environment uh, in D.C. Uh, but I think some things have not changed. And what has not changed, first of all, is the Constitution. And what has also not changed is the, the basic principle that no one, not even the president, is above the law. Hmm. You mentioned the different media environment, and I've been wondering myself if that's one of the great allies that the president has, is that there's a, been very, very different coverage uh, on Fox News and on conservative radio than there have been on the other networks. And I don't know what will penetrate, uh, how much of these hearings that are currently going on as we speak uh, will penetrate to Trump's core supporters or, or will change any minds? Do you think, I'm kind of wondering, even if we are at roughly the same place in terms of, of support for impeachment and removal, if, if there's any more room to move the needle given the current fractured media environment? It, it's certainly challenging uh, when we don't have the uh, media environment that was in place in 73 and 74 when most of America was watching the same three channels that were showing the same news. But uh, one thing that is also worth putting in perspective is that on the day that Nixon resigned, a poll showed that 25% of the American public supported him. So if we assume the same, let's say it's uh, exactly 25%, 25% will support Trump no matter what, even if he literally shoots someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue. That may be the case, um, but that wasn't enough to save Nixon. And the important point is not whether that 25% sort of regime dead-enders can be persuaded, but rather whether the uh, much larger group of people, including many who voted for Trump in 2016, will now uh, look at what he's done and, and understand it as having crossed some lines um, that maybe they didn't anticipate, uh, but that, that rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And the situation is not so different uh, from 1973 and 74 that I don't think that uh, we can, that I don't think that we can't persuade um, a, a large enough swath of the American public that the time is right. Well, Ron, you mentioned you've got a new book out. What's the title again? Uh, it's not so new, um, but uh, it's uh, it's been out for for a little while. It's called "The Constitution Demands It: The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump." And also, people can visit your website. What's it called? Uh, freespeechforpeople.org. Well, thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And that's our show. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephants. Check them out on Spotify. My name is Stuart Harris. And remember, you are a part of the American Experiment.